The scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It is also our sermon text this morning. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patience and endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the words, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know the tribulation of you and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to open up our hearts uh, to hear your word, open up our eyes to see it and to understand it. We pray that we may take it into our lives, that we may live these things out even today as you gave it for your saints in days of old. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 The book of Revelation is not a book about zombies and worldwide plagues and global warming disease destroying everything. Uh, It's not this fantastic novel where doomers and gloomers uh, find walking dead people and uh, fantasy creatures performing destructive miracles. It's not filled with creatures like you find in the movie Alien. Uh, It's not a Da Vinci Code kind of book that Tom Hanks uh, made popular. And this morning, and throughout my sermons in the book of Revelation, I want to uh, rid your mind of that kind of description, of that thinking of the book of Revelation. It is a revelation of Jesus. It is a revelation of Jesus. It's not uh, Generation Zombie or whatever else. Now, on the other hand... It is about the end of an era, of the old covenant era that the Apostle John lived under that ended in A.D. 70. It is about the climax of Daniel's statue in chapter 2. 
uh, that he was living under. And, and this book is uh, about the end of that, that statue in living color, particularly the destruction of the feet, which are made up of iron and clay, Rome and Herod, Israel. Uh, but it's about all four of those empires because the stone strikes the statue in the feet, but it collapses from Nebuchadnezzar down the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, and into Rome uh, with Israel. Uh, they all come crashing down, having and being destroyed in that Roman era by the rock of Jesus as he establishes his last and final kingdom. Uh, that rock that grows up to be a mountain that covers all the earth, even as Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 2 and uh, Micah 5. Uh, remember, what's the first thing that Jesus preaches when he comes preaching? Believe on me, for I am the Lord. Uh, the gospel is justification by faith. That's not what he says. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. He is the embodiment of the kingdom. He's bringing the kingdom. And so this book is about the last days of the Old Covenant, about Jerusalemic false worship being ended and the church that rises out of that. But primarily, even having said that, it is a book about a wonderful love story, about a groom come to prepare a bride out of that era to enter into an everlasting kingdom as the bride of the exalted one, Jesus Christ. And that's how I want you to think about the book of Revelation. It's really a love story as Jesus prepares his bride to live with him forever. Of course, that bride being you, the church. That's a lot softer and nicer, isn't it? It's a lot more woke, think about it that way. That it's a love story between <laughs> Jesus and his people. Now, we saw this last time with the simplified outline organized around the four uses of the clause in the Spirit, which is used in chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 17, and chapter 21. And these four phrases describe the exalted and glorified Jesus because in and through them, the exalted Jesus is glorified with a bride. In chapter 1, uh, John says he's in the spirit. What does he see? The exalted Jesus. Uh, in chapter 4, he's told to come up into heaven. And so in the spirit, he goes into heaven. What does he see? The exalted Jesus around the throne in chapter 5, right? He's a lamb as if slain. He receives the book and starts to rip the seals off of it. In chapter 7, he's exalted there, but he's not glorified. In chapter 17, we see an apostate bride Jerusalem, the harlot, the prostitute, whatever you want to call her, that rides on the back of the nations, and that's the nations around there, around Israel. A bride, a false bride that is inglorious, and she's vile and uh, corrupt. And that's the Jewish church of Jesus' day. Uh, she is Babylon. But in the last use, in chapter 29, verse 9-11, uh, he's told uh, to come up in the spirit, we see the bridegroom glorified with a beautiful bride, which is the church. And that's the description of the gems, the gold, the streets of gold, those kinds of things. So that's the story of Revelation, a glorious bride for the exalted son. That's the theme. It's a love story like Song of Solomon, but a little bit different.
We also see this theme expressed in the covenant renewal worship outline that I gave you last time. We are all familiar with that. It's our liturgy, uh, which glorifies that outline, glorifies and beautifies the bride, preparing her for presentation to exalted Savior. Especially in the second and third part, the purification and the consecration sections of covenant renewal worship. We confess our sins. And now you're being changed even as you hear me speak the words of Jesus. The word of God does not come back void. It changes us, even in ways you don't understand. And that's where we are today in the book of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3, the purification section uh, of of the liturgy, where the Savior confronts and exhorts his bride with the seven letters or the seven messages to the seven churches. Uh, Here Jesus comes to inspect his churches, all right, to determine whether or not they're living up to his standard. And five of them have some kinds of failure. Only two of them do not. The messages heard and heeded will form the angels and the churches they serve into the bridal image of the imperial lover who is Jesus. As he speaks to them, he'll transform them to become more like him. He delivers the messages so that she too can speak the word into the world. We find that Jesus' words uh, form a future bride for uh, by speaking of the future. He's telling her what's soon going to take place. And as she listens, she's going to be able to move into the future and shape the future. All right? So that's, he's speaking to her about the future and that bride is going to move into the future and she's going to be changed submitting to her Lord. The messages uh, warn of afflictions to come, holding out promises both the present and the future. Jesus wants them to recognize their coming sufferings for what they are, the tribulation that brings a new age of fulfillment. And that's true. Everybody goes through tribulation to bring a new age of fulfillment. For some kids, it's called elementary school, right? They don't want to go to school. Or others, it's high school or college or boot camp. It's a tribulation before you get the fruit of being on your own. Or it's being the younger person in the company who gets all the crummy jobs until the next younger person gets hired, right? Uh, We all go through those tribulations, but it brings a better and glorious future. Uh, Through these seven messages... Jesus answers the question of whether God is still in charge when Christians suffer. Is God still in charge when Christians suffer? We need to need we need to know that. You may get canceled soon. All right, wake up one day and you're not anywhere on social media because you have the temerity to say that homosexuality is wrong, and that Jesus says it's wrong, whatever it may be. Uh, he answers the question of our God is still in charge uh, when when Christians suffer slander, false teachers and prophets are all abound, when pastors leave their first love or labor with lukewarm affection. Is Jesus still running the church? The answer, of course, is yes. Uh, Jesus is still Lord and he's still judge in the midst of trials, ensuring that her travails will bring her forth into birth pangs. Even in the midst of persecution and tribulation, which John says that he's in in chapter uh, 1, verse 9, 
Jesus is still the priest in the heavenly temple, trimming the lamps, walking among the lampstands in the end of chapter 1. John says he's in the tribulation endurance, but Jesus is right there with them. Uh, He's trimming lamps, filling them with oil. Jesus is the divine lover, writing love letters to prepare his bride for the future, particularly for the future marriage supper of the Lamb. The book of Revelation indicates that Jesus' growth in his humanity and in his glory does not end with his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, but rather that he is fully glorified only when he possesses the fullness of his glory, the bridal city that is the church. Remember, the woman is the glory of the man. The church grows up into him, and as glorified human, he grows up by union with his church. Even in his exaltation, Jesus continues to advance from glory to glory. And part of that glory, that advancement, is you. And me, it's us. Now, a couple preliminary notes about these messages. Um, Why these seven churches? We're going to look at two of them this morning. Well, the text doesn't tell us directly. Uh, The theological geography is that they're halfway between Rome and Israel. They're up here in modern-day Turkey, halfway between Rome and and Israel. Um, They're the parts... Uh, of the last empire, uh, Rome and, and Jerusalem with Herod. Uh, therefore, the space, this space here is where Jews and Gentiles are knit together in one humanity as as Romans go to Israel and as Israelites go to Rome. And, and we know from even the letters to some of these churches that there are many Jews there, there are synagogues, there is a great mixing. We know from extra-biblical sources, imperial cult uh, worship takes place in some of these cities as well. The seven cities are all along one Roman uh, road circuit in present-day Turkey. Also, though each letter is specifically written to a locale, they are not private because each ends with the phrase, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So each one is addressed individually to the pastor, to the angel of the church, but they're meant to be read to the others. And Possibly this road endeavor uh, made it easier for these letters and messages to be written or taken to these other cities. Who are they addressed to? Well, I already mentioned they're addressed to the angels, the pastors of the churches, uh, and not to churches, uh, to the, uh, the churches themselves. Uh, the churches are included. We'll see that in some of them. The pronouns and verbs are often in the singular. Jesus is the emperor who sends his edict through his provincial representatives, which is the pastor, okay, the angels or the bishops of the church in each city. And there's some question, maybe the letter is written to a bishop and there are several congregations, or maybe there's just one congregation and it's written to that man, that pastor there. We're not exactly sure. Uh, Remember from chapter 1, the angels are stars. They're in Jesus' right hand. And as they shine, the bride is prepared to become the city of light. Uh, But as John has already made clear in the introduction himself, the plot line of that preparation is this, for for these cities to shine. Through suffering to kingship, 
along the path of endurance. There's going to be endurance required in this suffering. But for those who overcome, those who conquer, there are blessings, as I already read. Well, let's look at the, the message to the first church, Ephesus, which means a desirable. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now here we find Jesus introducing himself to church using two of the descriptions of himself found in chapter 1, verse 16 and 13 of chapter 1. The stars in Jesus' hand are the seven angels, and the fact that he holds them in his hand is reassuring to the stars. They belong to him. He holds them. The right hand is the hand of power stretched out against Pharaoh in Exodus 16, uh, in Exodus 15. And so Jesus holds the angels with intentional protective power. He is Yahweh. Jesus also pictures himself as Emmanuel, God with us, as he is seen walking among the lampstands. The end of verse 1, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Um, And that suggests uh, surveillance. He's looking at them, inspection, uh, circulation. He's moving around. He is present with his churches. And he's ministering to them, trimming their lamps, giving them oil, pouring out the Holy Spirit upon them. Uh, Walking in a grove of seven burning trees, Jesus is Yahweh, walking in the midst of the garden, uh, coming to judge the Adamic guardian of the Ephesian garden. I'll explain that in a minute. The Adamic uh, guardian, that's the angel, of the Ephesian garden. As a priest, Jesus is in charge of the lamps and lampstands, which includes the authority to remove them. If this church doesn't measure up, or if the angel doesn't measure up, it can be removed, just as Yahweh did in the exile of Israel. Remember Ezekiel uh, 9 through 11. Yahweh gets up and leaves the house of God. And what do we know uh, from the text? that Nebuchadnezzar took all the hardware in the temple and moved it to Babylon as well. Because in chapter 5, they light up uh, the lampstand. And it shines on the wall so that the king can see the handwriting on the wall and then he'll be dead that day. Okay? Uh, So, uh, God will remove the lampstand. He's not afraid to do that. Verses 2 and 3. I know your works, Jesus says to the pastor. I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now again, I don't believe John is speaking to a, a, a heavenly angel Uh, but he's speaking to the angel of the church. This guy is working and ministering amongst the people. He's testing and doing things. He's not a a spiritual angel. He's a man. And here Jesus commends the angel with a list of ten actions, suggesting a link with the ten words, the ten commandments of Exodus 20. The Ephesians are a new Israel. Uh, Jesus' words as he comes to them, a new Torah. Okay, The list of ten provides a complex vision of Christian virtue, of what it means, the fabric of Christian life, the warp and woof. Christians are called 
to good works. That seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? But today, a lot of the church does not believe that we are called to good works. You're called to let go and let God. Or your work is to find, to do nothing, to rest in Jesus and let him do everything. But the whole Bible is a huge exhortation. This this whole book is exhorting us to live faithfully as God's disciple and to imitate him. And so we find here that Christians are called to good works. But among those good works, particularly this pastor, are the sturdier virtues of testing and hating falsehood. Now here he's talking to to the angel, the pastor, but that includes the congregation as well. We're called to bear with affliction, but also called to refuse to put up with evil men. Tolerance of evil is evil. It was good this past week to see many of the bishops of Africa coming out against the Pope and saying, no, we're not blessing homosexual marriages. We're not blessing homosexuals. You, We're not blessing anything homosexual, however you label it, because it's not the word of God. We've not gone there in 2,000 years, and we're not going there this year. And they took, they're not tolerating that evil of the Pope, and maybe we'll see God remove him. Who knows? Jesus knows this angel. He knows his works and his toil and his patient endurance in the tribulation. Remember, he's a star in the hand. uh, And he cannot bear with those who are evil. Uh, Jesus is paying attention as he walks among the lampstands. This angel also has tested self-designated apostles and found them to be false. Men who are hanging out their own shingle on their own authority or not having spent time with Jesus in his earthly ministry. He's uh, marked them out as liars, all while enduring and bearing up for the name of Jesus. He calls them false, okay? And uh, and they are hypocrites, because what, what does apostle mean? Him who is sent. But these guys sent themselves, okay? They hang, hang out their own shingle. Um, and throughout it all, This pastor has not grown weary. Jesus is cognizant of his faithfulness uh, of his saints and that he has been steadfast. Verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. While the angel has done well in leading the church, he has a serious fault. He has abandoned his first love, the love he had at first. Now, what does it mean for this bishop of the church to have left his first love? And if you read the commentaries, there's all kinds of suggestions, emotional, um, all, all kinds of things that come. But I think we get a hint with the second use of the word first in verse 5. The angel is to turn around to repent and begin doing again the works he did at first. The second half of verse 5. Repent and do the works you did at first. The verbal link suggests a connection between first love, uh, which has been abandoned, and first works. As you know, Jesus said, if you love me, You'll hate my commandments because commandments are toilsome and burdensome and and so commanding and putting down of people. Is that what Jesus said? 
No, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And most, again, most of the church has forgotten that. They don't like John 15. Uh, but it suggests a connection. If you love me, you'll keep my commandment. Love and good works are especially connected, particularly all through John's writings, first, the second, and third John. Um, so we find Jesus telling this angel, this pastor, that for all his doctrinal purity and rigorous gatekeeping, he does not keep the commandments of Jesus the Lord. And so he's left his first love. He is not listening to his Lord, not loving his ways. He has done the ten words, but he's forgotten the first work of the ten words in Exodus. To remember who brought them out of Egypt. To have no other gods before them. He's put other gods, maybe maybe theological rigorousness, before keeping the commandments of Jesus. Additionally, the use of the term fallen... He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, verse 5, uh, the term fallen links to the garden where Adam fell away by having another God before Yahweh, the serpent. All right? He listens to him. He believes the serpent and not the Lord Yahweh. Even more so, he is now a fallen star and doesn't shine anymore. He's a fallen angel fallen like Satan in the garden when he contradicts Yahweh's words. Remember, the serpent is sent there. He's the wisest beast, and he's sent there to train Adam and Eve, but he decides he doesn't want to do that, and he contradicts Yahweh. Oh, you won't die. Don't worry about that. Okay? And that's when he falls. Well, he's like him. Um, He's a fallen angel like Satan, or maybe uh, like in chapter 12, where we see this battle takes place in heaven, and he falls to earth. The angel, though, is told to remember a covenantal action of endurance that unites God with his people. He's told to remember where he's come from. As God remembered Noah on the ark, remember he's floating on the boat, and the text says, and God remembered Noah. Oh, yeah, he's been out there for 150 days. Uh, it tells us that God remembered the Israelites in Egypt. They were undergoing slavery. They were being persecuted. Little boys were being thrown in the river. God remembers and begins to act. So this angel is to remember the place or the relationship he once enjoyed with Jesus. Uh, the, the obedience he had. This is the beginning of repentance. The end has to do with the works he did at first. The weight of his fallenness is heavy. The lampstand will be removed. It will be removed from the heavens and the presence of Jesus. It won't be tended to. It will be burned out. It will burn out. And that's not a good income or not a good outcome. Verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, uh, which I also hate. With this verse, Jesus returns to commending the angel. Uh, while the angel is not a good lover, he is a good hater. Uh, not love and hate as emotional states, but as loyalty and attachment to a group or a person. And here, Jesus is the model. Uh, he would not be the love of God toward the oppressed if he did not oppose the oppressor. Uh, neither can we truly love the good without hating evil. And that about sums up Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? His fighting with the Jewish leaders who oppressed the people. He defended the oppressed. Who are the Nicolaitans? 
Uh, we aren't told. But their name breaks down into the meaning of victory people. Victory people possibly describing Christians who dominate others, uh, but more on them later with better hints when we get to the letter written to Pergamon. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Now each, each letter, as I mentioned earlier, ends with this phrase, he who has an ear, which Jesus uses frequently during his ministry in the Gospels, if you remember. Since it is the Spirit who is speaking to the churches, what that tells you is that there were some in the audience in the church that lack ears. Let the churches hear what the Spirit is saying. The hardening that happened to the Jews during the earthly ministry of Jesus, well, that's happening to some of these churches as well. Another sign of the impending eschatological crisis. Love has grown cold, Matthew 24, 9. And Jesus is like Isaiah speaking to a people whose ears are closed. Now also notice that it's the Spirit who is speaking. How did that happen? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, remember from chapter 1, 1, the Spirit is the angel of Jesus who signifies the revelation that the Father has given to Jesus. Go back to 1, 1. The revelation, and revelation there is that word apocalypse. All it means is revealing. It doesn't mean zombie creatures from the movie Alien. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to signify to his slaves the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel, the angel of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to his slave John, who then bears witness. Um, so we, so we, that's who is speaking. Of course, listening to the Spirit here is the path to victory. So each letter ends with an exhortation to hear not only what the Spirit is saying, but also with the promise of some kind of victory. Those who listen and those who conquer will be victors over the Nicolaitans, the victory people. Here, victory is somewhat passive, meaning standing firm, witnessing to Jesus in the face of threats, uh, refusing to tolerate the Nicolaitans, and even possibly martyrdom. But those who resist the Nicolaitans will return to Eden to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Feasting on the tree of life means receiving Jesus' flesh and his blood as true food and true drink. Uh, he is the true tree. As we eat the fruit of the cross, we become what we eat. As you eat communion this morning, you become more like Jesus Christ. And we also become more like each other. It binds us not only to Jesus, but to each other. Each of you will have that same breath smell on your breath. Each of you will smell the same sweetness as the wine goes along in between your lips. We're all being united there. Okay? Uh, now, eating of the tree of life, I don't think is a promise of eternal life per se, but of access to the holy city because it shows up later on. It's the polity that descends from heaven after the martyrs have triumphed at the end of the book in chapter 22. It's a promise that the overcomers will enjoy victory, the, the victory feast of the Eucharist, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the feast of lovers in the garden. 
corset issues in the eternal life, but they're eating together uh, in the garden there, uh, both the groom and the bride. So in summary, Jesus warns the church at Ephesus that the church will collapse if the pastor persists in his fall, if he does not return to his post, to his first love and his first deeds. Yes, we could say support your local sheriff, but more importantly, pray for your pastor. You don't want your lampstand removed. Pray for your pastor's faithfulness. The next letter to Smyrna is a short one, and here we find that the angel is not criticized. Um, Smyrna means myrrh. It's the anointing oil used for priests. Esther bathes in this stuff for six months before she's presented to the king, so she oozes myrrh uh, before she goes to Ahasuerus. It grows in the garden of the bride in the book of songs. It's one of the gifts of the seven magi. And it was used for Jesus at his burial. Did y'all notice I slipped in seven there? Seven magi? Think about that. All this is to say that with a church at Smyrna, Jesus is the myrrh-anointed priest, the holy lover. Uh, and the suffering church is also a priest in him, his, perfor- his perfumed and beloved bride. Verse 8. To the angel of the church at Smyrna, write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Again, Jesus uses a description of himself uh, found from chapter 1 as he approaches Smyrna for inspection. He is the first and the last, the origin of all things. He is the economy of the present time. God is summing up all things in Jesus, his son. And Paul says that specifically in Ephesians 1. Uh, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Uh, But immediately, Jesus adds that he's the one who also died and came to life. Death is the beginning of his life. It's not the end. Jesus is the beginning in that he was dead. He is the end in that he came to life, triumphed over death, and lives forever. The movement of those who follow him, follow him from death to life. Now, this is important. We're going to find out in just a couple minutes for the church at Smyrna. For they are facing death in Jesus and for Jesus. And he wants them to be secure in his calling of them and their calling uh, for him. Verse 9, I know the tribulation of you and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander who say they are Jews or not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Like with Ephesus, Jesus is present near their lampstand. He knows the tribulation they're in, and he knows their real poverty. And here I think this is not spiritual poverty, but real destitution. They, they have been canceled. They've had stuff stolen uh, they, without homes. But he states encouragingly they're rich. They have treasures elsewhere in heaven, as he stated in the Sermon on the Mount uh, and how you pray. The fact that they are enduring tribulation again, is another sign that Matthew 24 is ticking. Contrasted with the provisional knowledge of Jesus is the slander or blasphemy of those who are not even worthy of the name Jew because they are a synagogue of Satan. What does that mean? They're an assembly of accusers. That's what Satan is. He is an accuser. He accuses the brethren even before God himself. Zechariah chapter 3. 
Since these accusers are attacking the angel of the church who operates in the power of the angel of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, this, these accusations amount to blasphemy against the Spirit. Blasphemy against the Spirit is not forgiven. Jesus says in the Gospel, these blasphemers will be silenced and judged. And that's got to be encouraging to the angel and to the church as well. Again, um, it's also encouraging that the pastor is not chastised by the lamp tender. Jesus has been walking around and the pastor is supported at every turn. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now here, here Jesus issues two imperatives to this pastor and to some of his flock because some of them are going to be thrown into prison with him. He says, do not fear what they're about to suffer and be faithful unto death. They're not to fear the devil who is about to throw them into prison and the testing that comes with it, nor the tribulation that will be a complete period of testing. Ten days, you all know, numbers of ten are complete period of time. It may have been a literal ten days. It may have been a complete period of time. Uh, they are to be faithful unto death. Now we know why the introduction that Jesus gave him himself. He is the one who's already faced death. They don't need to fear this death. He has faced it, and through that death, he is living. He, he died, and he came to life. They can face this death and overcome it in him. He died, and behold, he is alive forevermore. So he commands them to follow in his footsteps by faith. Be faithful. Trusting in Him, running the race that He's already endured and conquered. Keeping their eyes upon Him in obedience, they will have the crown of life. I don't think this is an actual crown, but the crown of life, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. What we learn uh, from here is that saints triumph in the same manner, the same way Jesus did. Now is the judge of the world, now is the prince of the world cast out, Jesus said as He went to the cross. Remember, that's when he went to the cross, when he, was, when he was suffering. In Jesus, the saints overcome Satan by spilling their blood in and with Jesus. It looks as if they are being judged and defeated by satanic assault led by their Jewish accusers. But in fact, they're like Jesus. Judges of their judges, as he was of Pilate and of the people, and witnesses against their accuser. God's agents for bringing this world and its ruler under judgment. Victors in the midst of suffering. Like the apostles who rejoice when whipped for Jesus in Acts, so these Smyrnans are to know that their death brings victory out of the apparent jaws of defeat. Of defeat. With Jesus on the cross, again, with Jesus on the cross, Satan thought he had the victory, didn't he? He thought he was winning. With these Smyrnans in prison and being martyred, again, Satan thinks that he'll have the victory. But we know that it is his undoing. Like kindness to your adversary, burning coals destroy his head. All right? Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. The churches, the one who conquers, will not be hurt 
by the second death. Now this is what the Spirit again is saying to churches. Be faithful unto death, trusting the one who overcame death and is alive forevermore. But Jesus adds another promise as well. Those who endure those ten days of trial, those ten days of tribulation, those who are faithful in death, do not need to fear the second date, death. They will not suffer the second death. Now, while the hearer at this point does not know what the second death is, he will by the end of the book, right? He'll know that as he listens to the whole of the book. The second death is a confinement to a lake of fire, eternal punishment in hell. Shows up in chapter 20 and chapter 21. That's where the beast, that's where the false prophet, that's where Satan himself is thrown in to the lake of fire. That's the second death. In other words, saints who are faithful in this life unto death are delivered from the power of the second death. And they become kings and priests of God. In fact, in chapter 20, we'll find that those who suffer like these guys, who have their heads cut off, are resurrected and they reign for that thousand-year millennial period. And they don't have to fear the second death. And so the choice for these Smyrnans is... The first death, they can be faithful in the first death, or they can face the second death. While murderous enemies may do their worst, in the end they can do nothing but crown the saints with life. Jesus and his people are undefeatable because defeat is in itself victory. Defeat in itself is victory. Jesus has turned things upside down. Do not fear, Jesus says, my followers are victors indeed. Just as he hung on the cross with his feet crushing the head of the serpent, little did the serpent know that was happening, but that's what was taking place. In closing, um, let me point out one more glorious link or bridal link in all these messages to the churches. Uh, Each of these churches, uh, each of these messages focus on a particular period of biblical history starting in the garden and working its way all the way to the gospels of these seven churches right? Um, just as the gospels show Jesus himself recapitulates Israel's history as he fulfills their callings as priests king, prophets and true man uh, each of the gospels shows Jesus that way the book of Matthew, Jesus the priest book of Mark Gospel of Mark, Jesus the King. Luke, he's the prophet. And, and John, he's the true man, the true brother. Okay, um, He fulfills them. In the same way, because the church is the body of Jesus, Israel's history is imprinted on the experience of the churches. You see this in the book of Acts. The apostolic church goes through those four phases as well in Christ. In the early chapters of Acts, they're priestly. They move on to kingly. They move on to prophetic. And then Paul himself is pictured as the true man. Uh, The Old Testament church is the body of Christ and so is the early church. They are joined pictorially in the gates and foundations of the glorious heavenly bridal city when it's described in chapter 21. The names on the gates are the names of the tribes, right? The names on the foundations are the apostles. 
And the walls are the living saints. They're all merged together in this picture. All right? Uh, we are all the body of Christ. We're all his bride. So how do we see these periods in these messages? Well, we see them with some obvious literary clues. Uh, I think Ephesus is very obvious, right? You have the tree of life. Where is that found? <laughs> in the garden. Okay? And paradise of God. Verse 7. Those both refer back to an Edenic, Edenic Adamic illusion. Uh, additionally, the angel or pastor has what? Fallen from his work, his first works. Another allusion to Adam, Adam in the garden who failed to guard the bride. But Jesus is gracious, and if the pastor overcomes in faith, he will continue to eat at the supper of the lamb, and the lampstand will not go dark. In Smyrna, we have some obvious links as well to the next period of Old Testament life, the patriarchs. Who, who in the patriarchs has much tribulation and much poverty and is falsely accused? Who dies twice but is resurrected twice, having been thrown into a, pri a pit and a prison? Who is not hurt by that second death but instead is raised and crowned with life. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? That the story of Joseph is woven into the message of Smyrna because Joseph is a type of Christ, ruler of the world, bread, the bread of life for the world, right? He feeds the world. All, all the world's coming to him and he's the ruler and he's feeding the world with bread. Is that a picture of Jesus at the end of Genesis? And Joseph forever lives, never facing the second death from the prison because he was faithful, trusting the Messiah to come who would crush the serpent's head. He wanted his bones buried where? In Egypt? Uh-uh. He said, hey, God's going to come deliver you soon and you put me in a suitcase and you carry my bones to Israel and you bury them up there. Okay, in heaven on earth, right? The promised land. He made them swear they would do so when they left the land in the future uh, that he believed would come soon enough. So we see that Yahweh was always with his people even as Jesus uh, is with his church in this book. And he's always with you and all of us today and forevermore because he lives forevermore. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of encouragement that our Savior does live forevermore. He's ever present, walking amongst us, uh, inspecting us, examining us, making us more perfect and more beautiful. We ask that you would give us hearts filled with His Spirit that we may be faithful, obey, and walk in ways that glorify Him and you and the Spirit. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen.